Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're joined by Robert Lawson, a clinical professor, and Jerome M. Fullenweider, Centennial Chair in Economic Freedom. He is also a director of the Bridwell Institute for Economic Freedom at the Southern Methodist University and a connoisseur of Skyline Chile. Uh, Bob, thank you for uh, joining us today. Thanks, Doug. That's a good intro. So you, uh, you recently uh, co-authored a book called Socialism Sucks, Two Economists Drink Their Way Through the Unfree World. The other author, the other economist, is Benjamin Powell. Uh, tell us a little bit about your book. What's it about? Well, you know, it's a it's a book that's unlike anything that either Ben or I have ever written. Uh, both of us are fairly accomplished mid-career academics, have written a lot of articles uh, in journals that, you know, three people, four people may read. And Ben got the idea uh, of doing a popular book about uh, travel and because he and I have traveled all over the world for different economics conferences and mountain climbing trips and such. So that was the, uh, that was the sort of idea is, Hey, let's write a popular book and do what we like to do, which is travel all together, get, get drunk together. Uh, there's a fair amount of carousing in the book. The subtitle of the book is two economists drink their way through the unfree world. And we figured if we were going to write a popular book about our travels, it was going to be a truthful one. And that meant we were going to have to deal with the both Ben and, and my's uh, sort of excessive alcoholism. Um, so that's the sort of idea behind the book uh, is to try to write something that more than three people would read. So I should have asked this at the beginning. Uh, do you do you have your beverage of choice handy this morning? You know, it is a little early in the morning, uh, although I, I, I believe firmly it's five o'clock everywhere. But uh, alas, I'm still drinking drinking a cup of coffee. Um, but uh, yeah, one of the great pleasures of writing a book uh, like this is we, we get to give talks. And during the talk, we usually grab a beer and do the talk with a beer in our hands. Um, some of the universities we speak at don't particularly care for that practice, but we figure it's, it's a it's a prop. You know, it's, it's not a beer. It's a prop. It goes with the talk. Uh, so uh, as you've done your travels, uh, you know, for the book tour and so forth, what, uh, what are... Uh, you know, what are some of your favorite places uh, to as part of the book tour that you've traveled to? But also, which countries have the 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 best and worst consumer selection of beer? Oh, good question. So, I mean, the the initial idea was to just go to some place that we thought two economists would have something to say about. So we chose Cuba, um, and we went right after Obama had gone, and uh, but it was before the commercial flights began to be, become available. So we had to take a charter. It was very expensive, but we, we just went down to Cuba, hung out for about a week, um, drank and just made sort of observations about it. And we went in the process of doing that. We wrote a chapter. Uh, and the reason for writing the chapter at that point was just to write it off our taxes or, you know, write the trip off. Um, and our friends liked it. And so at the very same time, we had done this trip to Cuba, which was mostly just because I wanted to go to Cuba. Uh, socialism got hot again. The topic of socialism got hot again. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders um, you know, a Senator from Vermont was, was a, a credible presidential candidate. Um, you know, AOC, you know, and, and others have been, were now being elected to the, to the U S Congress. And, uh, they, they openly call themselves socialists. And sometimes they say democratic socialists, but 
So we decided to sort of, since we'd already gone to Cuba, we said, well, let's focus this book on, on socialism. And, and, you know, and beer, alcohol uh, became sort of a useful metaphor for all of our travels. We ended up going to Cuba, as I mentioned, Venezuela. Uh, we went to Korea, uh, the border of North Korea and China. We went to China, uh, Russia, Ukraine, Georgia in the so former Soviet Republic. And um, the beer became kind of a, a, a nice metaphor. Uh, for example, in, in Cuba, there's only two kinds of beer. And, and they're not terrible beers, I might say. One is called Cristal and the other is called Bucanero. And they're okay. Uh, they kind of taste like Budweiser that's been left in the sun for a couple hours. But, you know, I've had worse beers. Maybe that's what they are. Yeah, the problem is it's only two. <laughs> and, you know, we were there a week. And, uh, you know, after a week, you're like, I kind of like a different beer. And there are no other beers. And tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, 10 years from now, for all I know, the Cubans who live there full time only have two beers. And so one of the discussion points in the book then is that socialism, to the extent it works at all, and it, it, it sort of works in Cuba. I mean, no one's starving in Cuba, but to the extent it works at all, it delivers this sort of dreary sameness, like the utter lack of variety. Uh, in the stores. I mean, if you found, there were a lot of stores that had nothing, but if you found a store that had anything in it, there would only be four or five items. There may be a whole, you know, a whole uh, wall of water, or a whole wall of cola, Ben called it commie cola, but there's only one kind. So that was a, that was, so then, then we, that was our basic, became our organizing theme is like, Hey, we can, we can sort of use beer or alcohol generally as a, a running metaphor for how, how these countries work. Well, in Cuba's case, it means two, you know, utter lack of variety of goods and services. Uh, Venezuela has actually run out of beer completely at points in time. And this is because the government of Venezuela controls foreign exchange. And uh, the, the beer company there needs dollars to buy imported uh, hops. I, I guess they don't grow hops in, in Venezuela. So they have to import it. And the Venezuelan government doesn't give the beer company enough dollars so the beer company can't buy hops and can't make hops without beer or beer without hops so on and on it went from there but that that was a very useful um you know technique for us in terms of writing the book yeah it seems like they kind of ran out of everything in venezuela yeah i mean even official statistics suggest that uh, venezuela's law uh, venezuelans on average have lost 20 or 30 pounds uh and so the entire country is not generating quite literally not generating enough calories to, to sustain the weight of the population. Uh, we went to uh, the border of Venezuela and, and Colombia, where literally by the, uh, by the tens of thousands on a daily basis, with no exaggeration, tens of thousands of people walk across these two separate bridge crossings from Venezuela into Colombia. On the Colombia side, it's this very vibrant bazaar of, of, of uh, stores and concrete uh, shops, uh, sometimes just shanties where they're selling rice and beans and sugar. Um, and in the book, one of my favorite stories is, and it's probably the most emotionally, you know, wrenching story that we we encountered was we talked to a couple um, named Apollo and Ana Maria, and, and they had driven three days from Ciudad Bolivar, which is on the other side of Venezuela. It's on the far eastern side of Venezuela. And they had driven to the western border with Colombia and to buy food. Uh, it was a three-day trip, one way, so it's a six-day round trip. And I'm always asking my my friends, 
uh, or ask people around here, like, hey, how bad would your life have to be in DFW where we live? How bad would your life have to be to, uh, you know, get in a car and drive to Vancouver for groceries? Uh, and that's the, that's the, that's a very real situation. Um, and they're, they're not peasants. These weren't poor people. I mean, they had a car. They, they were middle class, upper middle class Venezuelans who are who have been reduced to this sort of desperate situation. All right. Well, that sounds cheery. Uh, uh, you know, maybe you yeah, they, they probably need the alcohol to deal with it. So what, what was it? So you started out in Cuba. Did you go to you went to Venezuela next or? Yeah, the order in the book's a little bit out of order. We actually went to Cuba first, but the Venezuela chapter is the first chapter because um, okay. we thought we, we wanted to start with the worst and sort of get better from there. So Venezuela was kind of the worst, although I guess probably North Korea is the worst. And we didn't get into North Korea because our wives didn't want to let us get murdered. Uh, <laughs> well, that's but, yeah, right. And, and so. Uh, I, mean, I, had a, I had an economist friend who says your wife should you should have just enough life insurance that your wife is indifferent as to whether you come home at night. But <laughs> um, our our wives were kind of adamant that we actually come home alive. So we went to China, and, and that's a little bit later in the book. So probably North Korea is the most dy- dystopian place in, on earth right now. But we didn't actually get into it. We just sort of looked at it across the river. Um, so yeah, we organized it Venezuela, then Cuba. Um, the opening chapter is actually Sweden because we, we felt the need to define our terms and uh, establish, I think, hopefully once and for all, that, that Sweden is not a socialist country. Uh, Bernie Sanders and people on the left like to call you know, Sweden socialists and say, hey, let's be like Sweden. But it's not a, it's not a socialist country. Uh, private, proper, pri- private property, you know, Swedish farms are owned by private Swedish farmers. Uh, the bulk of companies in Sweden are owned by private entrepreneurs, private businessmen, uh, women. Uh, you know, Swedish fishermen own their own boats. They go f- and they sell their fish and they sell their agricultural products on open f- markets. It's a, it's a market economy I and mean, they have high taxes and we all know about that. But Sweden's not a socialist country. There's no central planners. There's no, you know, government is not running, owning the means of production. And, uh, you know, right wingers actually do do the same thing. Both Bernie Sanders is wrong when he calls Sweden socialist. I hear right wingers sometimes call Sweden socialist. And that's not correct. It's just it's a market economy. Sort of like ours, um, there are differences, and, and the big difference is taxes. Their taxes are higher, but you know the organizing principle of the Swedish economy is not government control; it's it's private enterprise. So, how's the beer there? Excellent, and that's that's actually how you know it's not socialist <laughs> because the beer is excellent. Uh, although we didn't drink Swedish beer much, the beautiful thing about uh, open markets is you can buy beer anywhere uh, from anywhere in the world. We, we, we drank some wonderful Belgian beers in Sweden. Now, it was really expensive because those high taxes get get sort of funneled into the prices of everything. So the beer was expensive, but it was at least excellent. Um, you know, we actually ironically had Belgian beers in China, which is a lot further away from Belgium than Sweden is. And the beer in the Belgian beer we drank in China was cheaper uh, because uh China is actually, in some ways, a more <laughs> more free market not not every way, of course, uh, than than even Sweden. At least the taxes are lower, so the beer was cheap. Um, and Sweden, you know, China is not. And the title of the chapter on Sweden is, called, or excuse me, on on China, the title of that chapter is called "Fake Socialism," because although it wasn't always fake, it was real socialism under Mao. Um, after Deng Xiaoping's uh, reforms that began in 1978. Uh, China's been on the slow march towards more open, more private enterprise. And uh, at this point in time, Sweden, or, or 
I keep saying sweet. China is a, you know, sort of middle of the pack market economy. Um, and uh, the result of that, has, of course, been great for a lot of Chinese people who now have the ability to, to engage in markets and, and live comfortable material lives, which they could not do, of course, in, in Mao's time. So uh, which countries do you think have the, uh, the highest incidence of alcoholism? Uh, uh, excellent. Uh, you know, I, you know, it's a real good question. Of course, one immediately thinks of Eastern Europe because uh, those guys can drink. Uh, we went to Moscow and Kiev and uh, then Georgia. Uh, I've gone to Georgia myself uh, more than 15, 16 times. Ben's, that was Ben's first trip. Um, so probably the, the, the worst alcoholism uh, uh, is, is certainly in the Eastern uh, Bloc. Uh, Georgians are great drinkers, and that's why I like, like going there partly. Um, the interesting thing about Georgia is that, um, you know, of course, it was a Soviet republic in, in, in 1991 when they declared independence. They were a Soviet republic from 1920 until 1991. And uh, I mean, you don't get as hard socialism as totally government controlled of the economy as you got in, in the Soviet Union. And uh, since 91, they had some rough times for a few years after independence from the Soviets. But beginning in the middle 2000s, Georgia began a sort of free market revolution. Uh, a guy named Shakashvili became president and, and he led something called the Rose Revolution. And uh, a part of that was he hired a guy named Kaha Bendukidza, his name, and, and Kaha was kind of a crazy libertarian, and he he just he did these amazing reforms. I mean, he would go into a government office in Georgia and ask, like on a Tuesday at middle of the afternoon, and he'd say, "Okay, how many people work here?" And they would say, "Well, there's 55 people working in this bureau," and he'd say, "Well, how many of them are here right now?" And they'd say, "Well, five. And so he, he would fire the 50 people on the spot <laughs> who, who weren't there. Uh, he fired 80 percent. Uh, Shakashvili and, and Bendukidza fired 80 percent of the national government's bureaucracy employees in, in just a few months. They fired 35,000 police officers in a single day. They, they eliminated the entire road police and crime went down because the cops were actually criminals. Uh, uh, and so crime went down when you got rid of the cops in Georgia. So they did some amazing things. They lowered tax. They got rid of all tariffs. They the total tax rate is twenty percent. That includes payroll taxes. So income and payroll taxes are maxed at twenty percent. I mean, it's become in the economic freedom index that I work in uh, work on in my day job. Uh, Georgia's ranked fifth right now in the entire world. And again, it was a Soviet republic thirty years ago. So, uh, and uh, in terms of alcohol, uh, the beer is fine, but Georgia is wine country. Uh, they they literally, as far as we know, as far as archaeologists know, they invented wine in Georgia. It's the oldest known cultivation of wine on Earth. They have they have evidence of wine making in Georgia that's six thousand years old. It goes to four thousand BC, uh, and they're very proud of their wines and and their varieties. They have just uncountably large thousands, literally, no exaggeration here, thousands of grape varieties that exist only in Georgia, and. They make a very uh, a primitive style wine compared to the modern sort of French technical style that we have. But uh, if you're a wine snob at all, uh, George is the place to go. And one of the great things is since the Soviets left and uh, Soviets grew, the Soviets grew wine in Georgia, too, under the central plan. But it was terrible because it's socialism sucks. That's the title of the book. But 
since the Soviets left, the Georgians have been bringing back their old Georgian wines, their old varieties, uh, their old winemaking styles. And now it's becoming a, a real sort of mover and shaker in sort of the boutique wine world. I'm not really a, a huge wine drinker, but uh, it's definitely definitely a great metaphor for the, the resurgence, the revitalization of the Georgian economy after 70 years of Soviet socialism. The wine business in, the, in that country is really... Uh, really speaks to what can happen when you give people a little freedom. I wanted to talk about, because you also mentioned that you went to Ukraine and, um, you know, some of the post-Soviet republics uh, seem to have kind of bounced back uh, and others have, have not really done that well. Ukraine, I think, uh, has kind of been stuck in a rut. Uh, I mean, what, what's uh, what's the difference? Is it is it is it because Georgia in Georgia they drink wine instead of vodka or what? Uh, what do you think is explaining that? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is, it is, I mean, certainly one of the great things, I mean, not great, but one of the really interesting things about the breakup of the Soviet Union is how the various constituent parts have kind of gone their own way. Uh, you know, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, and the Baltics, uh, and they had a much shorter experience with the Soviet Union, but th they, of course, quickly liberalized, they quickly moved to a very Western orientation. Georgia and Armenia and the South Caucasus uh, again, with longer experiences under Soviet rule, it took them a little longer, but they've also moved pretty far to the sort of more open economy model. But yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, the, the title of our chapter for Russia and Ukraine is Hangover Socialism, because they're really still feeling the hangover, um, the, the after effect uh, of, of all those years of Soviet uh, dominated, government dominated economies. And it's an exaggeration. I mean, but Ukraine and you could say Belarus, uh, Moldova, some of these countries in, in that were former Soviet republics, they they just changed the letterhead. I mean, they got rid of the Soviet Union and, and that was good. I mean, you get rid of the Soviet Union, you get rid of the KGB for the most part, although the Secret Service replacement for the KGB in Ukraine is is no uh, no laughing matter. Um, but I mean, certainly people are freer in Kiev and in, in Ukraine today than they were in Soviet times. Um, and if you go to Kiev, it's a little bit of a quandary or a little bit of an oddity because Kiev is very vibrant. It's very lively. Moscow, same, same thing. It's very lively. There's a lot going on. You can go to Italian restaurants. You can drink alcohol from all over the world. Um, but, you know, capital cities are, are frequently can fool you. Um, you know, what, what the Russian government has become and what the Ukrainian government uh, is are basically kleptocratic governments. They steal and they funnel resources from the people in the countryside, the peasants, the farmers, the businesses all over the country. They, they steal and rob and they funnel those resources to the capital city. And so if you go to the capital city, it looks, wow, you're like, this is pretty nice. What, what, what's everyone complaining about? But then you realize it's kind of an empty uh, shell. Um, it's kind of a shell that... Uh, there isn't much there, uh, and they're basically living on borrowed time. Because eventually, of course, as we all know, you, you run out of people to steal from. Um, so, yeah, so the capital, we didn't have a lot of time on our trips to to, to Russia or, U, or Ukraine. So, uh, unfortunately, our experience was colored by this lively, central, sort of imperial city. And I, um, it's a shame because I think... I know with certainty that if you get outside of those cities, it's really quite desperate in, in most of the smaller towns, even large cities that aren't the capital city. I've got a question for you. What, as you were 
you know, on this journey, um, you know, and, and you're writing the book, what was your biggest surprise? I mean, you're, you're I'm sure you're a worldly wise man, um, and you're highly educated and so you must've come in with a, you know, well thought out worldview, but, but were there any surprises along the way? Well, um, that, well, actually, I'll correct you there. We we absolutely had no plan for this. Ben and I had no idea what we were doing. Um, we uh, we quite literally would just get on a plane, go somewhere. We maybe had a first a couple nights of a hotel ready, so we knew where we were staying after we got off the airplane. But we we pretty much winged it uh, the whole way. Um, and towards the end, we actually started to plan a little bit more. Uh, in in Moscow, for example, uh, we had set up some interviews because I've got people I know there. And we set up some interviews with people that lived in Soviet times. We talked to a, a wonderful filmmaker and he made films under the Soviet Union. And of course, he became a he stayed, remained a filmmaker after. And he, it was a wonderful interview, but it did, none of it made it into the book because uh, the book, uh, we were really going for that man on the street, Anthony Bourdain style. And when we when we organized it and planned it all out, uh, as good as that was, it was really good content. It, it turned into a journal article all of a sudden, and it was very boring and dull. So most of that didn't. So the best parts of this book are the unplanned parts. Now, as far as the surprise, um, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think we were terribly surprised. Uh, I mean, Cuba is terrible. And I knew it would be terrible going in, but the ways in which it's terrible were maybe a little bit of a surprise. Um, I mean, we've all heard of the American, we all know I'm a car guy. I've got a couple classic cars sitting outside my, my house right now. Um, uh, we all have heard about the Cuban car, all the cool 1950s, and, uh, you know, American Chevys and Plymouths and such. And, and you get there and you realize, oh my gosh, the, you know, the Detroit engine blew up, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, and they put a Fiat engine or a John Deere tractor engine in it. Now the suspension's gone. Don't even ask about air conditioning. If it ever had it, it doesn't now. I mean, they're junkers. I mean, they're worth nothing in America, in the American classic car market. These, these very famous Cuban, you know, 56 Plymouths and 57 Chevys and such, they're worth nothing. I mean, they're, they're worthless. Even in America today, they're, they're just not worth anything because they're junk. Um, and yet in Cuba, they're worth $15,000 U S dollars. Um, because the Cuban government won't let people import cars. The price of cars is just skyrocketing on, on the sort of secondary market. And, uh, that just makes no sense. So I think we were surprised. We weren't surprised that Cuba was poor and dysfunctional. We were surprised about how it was poor and dysfunctional. Like some things work, but other things don't like, there's no, um, I've been to a lot of poor countries. I've been to slums in Delhi. I've seen, and I've seen, frankly, stomach turning poverty uh, on this world. And, and I, I, I hope I never get used to it. I mean, it, it's always a, a punch in the face when you see really desperately poor people in the world. In Cuba, you saw desperately poor people, but it was very different. Like there's no, um, there's no boats in the harbor. There's no airplanes. There's no, uh, uh, there's no signs. There's no advertising. You know, I've been to poor, like in New Delhi, the poorest parts of New Delhi, there's at least signs telling you where the bars are. <laughs> and Cuba didn't have signs because, well, it's a government, everything's owned by the government more or less. And so why put up a sign? If, if a customer comes in your business, it's kind of a hassle because you, know, you got to deal with the customer. Um, so it's, it's a strange kind of poverty. It's not normal poverty, if that's the right word. I'm not sure that's the right way to think of it, but 
Um, so we were surprised at, at these weird things in, in the Cuban economy. Like, there's no world where those cars should be worth $15,000. There were nine, another example, there were uh, 30-year-old French Peugeots and Renaults. Now, thir- built in the early 90s. Now, an early 90s French Renault was a piece of junk the day it was built. Um, today, it has no value in, the, in America, France. It just has no value. A 30-year-old Peugeot is worth nothing. In Cuba, they're worth $30,000. I'm not exaggerating. Um, I mean, you, you, if you own a French Peugeot, a 30-year-old French Peugeot, you are, in Cuban terms, a millionaire, which just doesn't make any sense, right? So the, this is weird stuff. We almost called the Cuba chapter the price is wrong, kind of a play on the old game show, because every, all the prices are wrong. Yeah, and it just, you know, so it's it's weird. It's a weird place. Yeah, my first car was actually Renault. And I think that if you would have put a John Deere tractor engine in it, I think it would have been an upgrade. No kidding. Yeah, I mean, again, I was like, people were, I, I got a picture of this guy and he's, he's you know, this very proud Cuban. And he's he's got his arms draped across this, this white French Peugeot. And he's clearly proud. I mean, he's a proud man. You know, he's like, look at me. I'm a, I'm a rich man, you know. And I'm like, man, that car is worth nothing. Uh, and on a serious note, it did give me a little bit of pessimism about reform in, in, in Cuba because, I mean, eventually, I think, I mean, I assume, I, like everywhere else, Cuba is going to become a freer country. They're going to move towards free markets. They, they have to. It's going to happen. It's already happening a little bit now. Uh, but that poor, poor guy with his $30,000 French Renault, that car becomes worthless. The day you're allowed to import a 10-year-old Toyota for $5,000, right? The day you can import a, 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 a Japanese car or a Korean car from, from Mexico or from the United States into Cuba is the day that, that his French Renault uh, becomes worthless. And so he's, he's, he's got a lot at stake in the kind of current system. And if they do reform that, that, that aspect of the Cuban economy, that import ban on cars, um, he's, he's going to take a huge capital loss. And I, I think politically people like him, he and other people like him are, they're going to fight those reforms. They don't want to lose their, their investment. I don't blame them for fighting those reforms, but that's a real impediment to, chi- to, to Cuba's, uh, reform prospects. So I want to, I want to talk about like, um, the future, right? I think we saw 30 years ago, uh, a bunch of countries move away from socialism slash communism, particularly in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union. And since then, that's kind of seems like it stalled out. And actually, maybe you've had some backwards sliding with p- places like Venezuela. But one thing, you know, I do think we've learned some things about how difficult it is to transfer away from socialism so I, I don't know, like what you, you still have countries now like Cuba, like Venezuela, uh, like North Korea that could in, in, in theory, you know, let's say they get a new leader who decides, you know, I, I don't, I don't know why, uh, why it makes sense for us to, you know, have people starving or two types of beer or whatever. Like how, how do they, what advice do you have on how they could, how they could move away from that in a way that's, that's, uh you know, maybe maybe uh, a little less chaotic than what you saw in some of the uh, post-Soviet economies. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, we have learned something about the transition process. If you start hard socialist, as you know, all the Soviet republics did, China, of course, uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, 
these all all these countries were hard socialist countries, uh, really totally government control of the economy. And uh, one thing I think we've learned is that the path forward towards freer markets is there's not one recipe. There's not one way to do it. Um, what you've seen in China, for example, and of course, it's the most important example because just the sheer number of people involved is that the Communist Party itself saw the light. Deng Xiaoping saw the light and said, you know, uh, the famous quote from Deng Xiaoping, it was something along the lines of, I don't care what the color of the cat is as long as it can hunt. I mean, he didn't care if you called it socialism or capitalism as long as, it, as, long as the economy worked. And so he moved towards freer markets or moved China towards freer markets, but, I, but he did it in the context of the CCP still retaining total totalitarian political control of the country. And that's a, that's, that worked ish sort of, I mean, they've got a long way to go even on the freer market side in China, but it certainly had a, a huge impact. Uh, but if you look at like what happened in, in Eastern Europe, it was botched in a lot of ways. They, you know, uh, whether it was Eastern Europe, like Czech Republic, um, you know, Hungary, Romania, Poland, uh, Russia itself, they, they botched it a lot. They, the privatizations of state-owned enterprises was done by these corrupt, you know, mafia-like deals. And uh, Georgia was better because in part, Georgia came later. It took them about 10 years to get their act together. So they had the sort of advantage of doing it last. But Georgia's privatizations were very fair. They they have, an, they have a website, actually. You can They have auctions for all state-owned property. Now, most of the good stuff's already been bought. So, But you can go to today, you can go to the Georgian privatization state-owned enterprise auction website, and you can put in a bid, and you, know, you can buy a plot of land. They'll take Visa, I think. So if you guys want to become property owners in Georgia, I don't think it's terribly difficult. Um, but so, yeah, so, you know, it, it can go... It can go easy, it can go hard, it can go democratically. I mean, most of the, there were, there were liberalizations that occurred in the last 40 years that occurred democratically, like we saw, I mean, they weren't socialist, hard socialists, but like Ireland and New Zealand and Israel all reformed their economies a lot, and they did so democratically. China's reformed its economy a lot, but they did, they did so with a you know, totalitarian dictatorship kind of situation. Um, I don't know what Cuba or North Korea are going to do. Um, those political parties that run I mean, North Korea and, and Venezuela, they, they don't want to lose power. Uh, so um, I suspect the most likely scenario is a China-like reform process, which is not ideal, frankly, um, where the, the Communist Party of Cuba stays in power, one party state, no free and fair elections, don't don't write an op-ed criticizing the government or anything like that, but they're, they're, they'll open up the economy like China has done. I think that's the most likely. Um, it's not super great. I mean, I, I, I think China's long-run prospects are going to be harmed unless they open up their political system. But at least in the immediate term, I suspect that's most likely. So uh, we just had on uh, Adam Millsap on the show. Um, and, uh, we all saw him at the economic freedom of North America conference about a week or so ago. Uh, and when he was on the show, he talked a little bit about EFNA, but, uh, you already have mentioned, um, your work with the economic freedom of the world index, which the world is bigger than North America. So, uh, tell us, tell us a little bit about your work and, you know, and, and I guess, uh, 
how does that fit in with the book? Because it seems like there's a there's probably a real overlap with the work you're doing with the index and also you know your own personal travels. Yeah, I mean, so uh, I'm the one of the founding co-authors of the Economic Freedom of the World Report. It's an index. It's an economic freedom index uh, that Jim Gortney, he's my former professor at Florida State University. Uh, he and I started uh, with Walter Block way back in the 90s, and now we've got additional co-authors. Um, but what we do is we create an economic freedom index. So I gather data on taxes and tariffs and property rights and uh, capital controls and business regulations for 165 countries. We just released our newest report and there's 165 countries now. Uh, I track 42 variables um, and the data we get usually come from the World Bank and IMF and uh, World Economic Forum and pretty plain vanilla data providers. But we organize the data, we, we create ratings uh, and, you know, basically we're trying to score how free market a country is. And in the current index, Hong Kong is number one. They're still number one. There's some risk, as we all know. Venezuela is dead last in the index that I do. We don't have North Korea and Cuba because we don't have good data for them. So um, so I've been in charge of this uh, index of economic freedom for so many years. Um, and uh, it, it did help the book. I mean, uh, you know, we wanted the book to be. Uh, well, the, the the publisher's tagline at one point, and they, they did leave it in some of the promotional material, the tagline for a long time was uh, socialism sucks, the bastard stepchild of of Anthony Bourdain and Milton Friedman. Um, and we wanted to sort of marry the economics of Milton Friedman. And Milton's, Milton was instrumental in the creation of the Economic Freedom of the World Index. Um, I got to know him when I was a graduate student. He, it was his idea to do this index, really. He didn't do it. He left the work to uh, us younger people. But um, uh, but we wanted that irreverent style of uh, a man on the street style that Burdain was famous for. And so and I think we did a pretty good job of that. But uh, yeah, so in the book, we, we end up referencing the Economic Freedom of the World report a lot. Um, you know, in the first chapter on Sweden, you know, Sweden is not socialist. And part of the evidence for that is that in the Economic Freedom of the World Index, they're in the top quarter. They're in the top 25% of the rankings. I mean, it's not like, you know, Hong Kong, but it's a market economy. Uh, socialist countries are countries down at the bottom of the scale, like Venezuela. So uh, the index became a useful sort of statistic that we could sprinkle in the book. We didn't want to do that too much because, again, we didn't want to make this a, a boring journal article. But it was a useful statistic that we could throw in. Um, in the China chapter, we reference this because we get we, we have ch data for China, I think, beginning in 75. And it's a very low score, as you can imagine. And then we can talk about how the index score for China grew over time, especially after the, the reforms began in the late 70s. So the index was very useful for the book. Uh, but that's my you're right. That's my day job. That's why SMU hired me and, uh, is because that that economic freedom index is kind of my, my main research uh, project. We, we've already sort of alluded to this, but, uh, you know, since you've been doing th this index for a number of years, uh, does it really indicate sort of what, you know, I think we, the popular perception is that, uh, you know, in terms of economic freedom, that we're seeing a decline of economic freedom. We're seeing a, a, a spike in nationalism and central planning. Is, 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 your, is your research bearing that out? Uh, actually, not Dramatically, uh, if you look at the global average of our index and, you know, trying to hold constant the countries we're looking at. So, you know, 
if you look at the same set of countries, say from 1980 to present, and there's about a hundred, little over a hundred countries where I've got data from 1980 to present, well, you certainly see in the 80s and 90s a huge increase in the average score. I mean, this is the era of Thatcherism and Reaganite uh, economics, but it wasn't just in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, uh, you know, this was the era of privatization, lower taxes. GATT and the WTO were getting their, their, their really going and tariff rates came down all over the world. So the 80s and 90s, the, the global average increased. On, a, on our 10-point scale, it increased by over a point. Um, and, and that's a big increase on a 10-point scale. Uh, and since 2000, it's definitely moderated, but it's still increasing. Uh, the average has increased by about four-tenths of a point on our 10-point scale. So yeah, it's gone up. Uh, it's slowed down, though. But that's it's still good news. I think that those of us in the United States, um, the U.S. score is down moderately. A lot of European scores are down moderately. I think for us in in, uh, in Western countries, high income industrial Western nations, we sort of oversample our, ourselves. And we, uh, if you go out though and look at African ratings, uh, South Asian scores. Uh, there's still a lot of liberalization going on in Africa and, and even in Latin America, a couple exceptions like Venezuela, but uh, there's movement towards free mar freer markets uh, in large parts of the world that frankly, we just don't pay enough attention to ourselves. Our rating is pretty flat and actually the U.S. scores trending downwards slightly. Um, the U.S. Is, uh, has, has gone in a ranking sense. The U.S. is down to sixth. They, we, we, most, most of the history, we were third. Um, but actually in terms of the actual score, it's, it's down from, 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 from 2000, I think 2000 was the highest score for the United States and it's been down ever since then. Got a sort of a broader question and it may actually go beyond the index, but, um, what's your perspective on this? What's the, what's the bigger indicator of personal freedom, economic freedom or democracy? Well, uh, I think you need at least, uh, some economic freedom to even have democracy. Um, so there are very, very few examples, certainly very few sustained examples of democracies that didn't have economic freedom. Now, there are plenty of places that have economic freedom don't have democracies. So the, 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 the answer to the question is pretty, is more nuanced, I think, than, than it first appears. Um, I think economic freedom is a necessary precondition for democracy. You know, if you want to have democracy, I, I love it. I love democracy, man. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're doing it right now. Right. This is democracy. Podcasts like this are democracy. Uh, democracy is more than just voting every couple of years. It's about our freedoms to speech and complain about the government. And I saw a sign driving out in central Texas the other day that said, you know, F Biden. I thought that was you know, that's democracy. So uh, I, I love it. I, I, I cherish it as Americans. We should we should cherish our democracy. But if we want to maintain that democracy, we've got to have economic freedom. Um, and so, uh, I think that in terms of chickens and eggs, which came first, economic freedom comes first, and then hopefully you get a democracy. Uh, it's not, not guaranteed, but it's, you're not going to get democracy unless you have economic freedom. So I think that in that sense, economic freedom is more. Bob, it was a, a pleasure to uh, have you on the, uh, on the show. Thanks a lot, guys. It was fun. <laughs>